Hey there, it's Nick. While we're in our off-season, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite Love & Radio episodes and featuring the work of other podcasts that I think you'll love. Today, I wanted to play something from Radiotopia's Showcase. If you're not familiar with the Showcase podcast, it's pretty different from how most other shows operate. They put together a short series of maybe six or seven episodes with a completely different concept, story, and creator for each one. So when you subscribe, you get a totally different show every few months. Their newest series is called Secrets, and since we ended 2017 with our Secrets hotline, I thought it would be a good excuse to bring you their first episode. If you want to hear more, you can search for Showcase wherever you get your podcasts, or go to radiotopia.fm slash showcase. Okay. Here is the first episode of Secrets from Radiotopia's Showcase. We all have them. Secrets. Small little precious boxes of memories of something that can't be shared. Because then it would cease to exist as a secret and turn into something else. This is a show about those secrets. But even those secrets are by nature not something to be shared. There are of course facts about secrets. Facts that would be good for you to have before we start. For example, studies show that you have 13 secrets inside of you. Five of them are secrets that you never shared with anyone. You don't keep secrets. You have them. According to the same studies, the thing that we keep a secret the most is the fact that we want to fuck someone else than the person that we usually fuck, for instance, a husband or a wife or a boyfriend, a girlfriend or partner. Now even that thought might be a break of trust, but it's also what makes us human. I have experienced things and events that have turned into secrets, and so have you. Experiences that spawn out of primal instincts like lust or shame or anger. The only one who will ever hear everything is your own inner voice speaking to you, asking you, what have you done? I can't say why I did it the first time. In six episodes, we're going to open these secret boxes and enter another world. One lie become a second lie, and the third lie is coming just to camouflage the two other lies. I, I really genuinely enjoyed uh, the art of deception. I enjoyed deceiving people. She, she can't lie about she is being that sick. No person does that. Hi, Andrea. I'm not sure if you know who I am. My name is Gemma, and I'm Dwayne's girlfriend. I'm like, what? Is, what do you mean? Girlfriend? What's that? Girlfriend? I'm his girlfriend. <laughs> and throughout these six episodes, we're going to hear the story of Mohammed El Abed. Our dad didn't really, I mean, share <laughs> information with us. A story that consists of lies and secrets. He told me that uh, when uh, he came to Sweden, he walked from Morocco to Algeria and he, he fought with a lion. I don't think that story is true, but uh, that's what he said. Because one day, a secret was suddenly exposed. Umar, I called you, you know, I, I texted you because I was asking, did you know that our, our, you had a sister called Maria? 
And when that secret was put into daylight, suddenly things changed. For good. Pappa, can you berätta om farfar? This is my daughter Samira. She doesn't speak English. She's eight. <coughs> But what she's asking me is, Dad, can you tell me about my grandfather? Can you berätta några av dem? And I have no answers for her, other than the fact that I know that he had a lot of secrets. And the biggest secret was revealed 1992. I was 12. I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm sitting in a taxi on my way home. It was late fall and foggy outside. Three months earlier, my mom had suddenly died. And I was heading back to our family home where we used to live. But this time I was traveling to a memorial. And I'm sitting in the back seat of a taxi with my older sister. She suddenly leans over to me and says, you have a sister that you never met before. Her name is Maria. She might come to the memorial. Maria, an unknown sister, a secret, a secret that I'd never before heard of or even imagined. The car drives on, but now in silence. A silence is going to last for over two decades. Honestly, I think Maria was a secret that no one was supposed to know about. This is my sister Sadia. She's four years younger than Maria. She got to know about Maria around the same time as I did. I don't think anybody knew our dad. The last time I met my dad was in 1999. There were so many secrets, I believe, he, he kept for himself. Shortly thereafter, he passed away. It's like our dad had two personalities. Two personalities, two families, two worlds, split identities. He left me with no answers to his secrets. How do you understand someone who's dead? How do you understand why someone decides to hide a child from the rest of the world? With a dead father, I look for answers in other places. How is it to live with a secret? When, when I started off working undercover, I would often um, dress like a sort of travelling criminal, travelling scallies. How is it to hide a big part of yourself from everyone else and the one closest to you for years and years? So I would wear a tracksuit, my... Uh, Nike Air Max trainers and that had a certain credibility with people This is Neil Woods He used to be an undercover police He knows what it means to keep a secret to hide it from everyone But it always still had a little bit of suspicion so actually what I, what I found later on was that the most effective uh, way of blending in was to actually look a little bit like street people almost verging on homeless. So I would look really, really rough. For 14 years, Neil Woods pretended to be a heroin addict, an addict that in secret was working to get the other addicts, and most of all dealers, in jail. Um, but then it's not just about the clothing, it's also about um, how you walk and how you present yourself. So if I was presenting myself as a problematic heroin user then I would need to be aware that I might have stomach cramps. I would need to be aware that the, my shoulders would be hunching and, and lifted up. Um, I would need to be aware of how I was walking if I was supposedly rattling. Then I would be sort of um, hunched as if my stomach was cramping because quite often 
on withdrawal from opioids, that's one of the first areas that starts to ache. Uh, so I'd be hunched as if I had stomach cramps. Um, if I was walking towards the, towards a dealer, then it would be like really fast. If you see groups of um, problematic heroin users walking to meet a dealer, they're all walking really quick, but they're all hunched forward. So they're all like sort of leaning leaning forward as if they're leaning into the wind. Neil hunches and starts walking like a heroin addict. When I first started working undercover, there was no training, but eventually we had some training from some uh, level one, just undercover people, diff- different form of undercover work. And they would say that uh, we're, we're not actors. It, it's important you don't try and play a different role. You have to be a different version of yourself. And when you've been out on the streets for, for many, many hours or days and weeks, that, then that advice becomes very, very important because... If you're trying to play a different person, then that can be found out by the longevity of the operation or, or by extreme scrutiny. So you really have to be just another version of yourself. It was a skill that... I, I, I loved developing it, to be honest. I, I really genuinely enjoyed uh, the art of deception. I enjoyed deceiving people. I enjoyed uh, the manipulation of people around me and, and the goal, you know, the, the operational goal. I, I had a... A great deal of fun. Neil's life for almost one and a half decade consisted out of two worlds that couldn't meet and couldn't know anything about the other. It, I, I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't even tell my family or, or friends because very quickly I was told from um, senior people who were following the intelligence closely that, that I, I would be at risk and people at people that I was in I was close to would be at risk if I was to say what I was doing because this is an enormous business that we were attacking. Back at home he had a wife and then eventually two children who lived a completely normal life. He left them three days a week to become someone completely different. That was a strange thing um, having such a, a double life you know I had two young children when I was working undercover but as, the, as they were growing up um, sometimes when I was working long-term operations, I would I would be leaving um, on the, late on a Sunday night or very very early on a Sunday morning and working s- several nights away sometimes and and living away and living in a, a rather grimy surroundings, but then still coming home to family life and still taking my young children swimming on a Sunday morning. Um, but in- increasingly, m- but my marriage was 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 quite difficult though because um my wife was how should i put it um we we got together young and perhaps we weren't as suited as as uh, as as we'd thought and it, it wasn't after a few years uh, i i ended up actually in an abusive relationship so i found myself sometimes in the peculiar position of actually working undercover to escape home life now um, I, I stayed because I didn't want to abandon m- my kids and um, I am quite certain that my access to them would have been restricted by her if, if, if we'd split up so it was a, it was a difficult double life t- to lead I suppose um, and also very difficult trying to manage and keep things sort of calm at home so yeah it, it, that certainly brought its extra pressures working undercover um, which is which is a stressful um, time but, but sometimes as I say I felt like I was escaping uh, home life 
whenever I went to a a, a city centre and I was going to be there for a good six months, what I would do is I would pick somebody or a collection of people to manipulate because I needed to make sure that I was going to get introduced to the people that I needed to get introduced to because I'd be steadily trying to climb the tree and try and work my way into into the organised crime groups. But you have to start from the bottom. So I would manipulate people. I'd go into an inner city area for, for no less than six months at a time, really, because that's how long it would take. And, you know, the, the, the operations had to become as, as ambitious as possible. One of my favourite uh, alter egos was uh, Cookie. My nickname was Cookie. My full name was Paul Cookson, but Cookie for short, because everyone loves cookies, don't they? Now, Cookie had a background story, if somebody would ever ask. I was living with a girl from the northeast, and she was escaping domestic violence. And so we had to move away to escape from her jealous boyfriend. And that we were actually... Um, that we'd moved away with the help of police. Actually, we even we even said that we had we had the police to help us move away to protect her, and that's that's how we got um, a local council house in the area that we were working. So it was a very good cover, actually, because you you got lots of sympathy from from whoever. If you know, if you really did have to tell someone your cover story, we we always got sympathy for it, and that was quite useful. Neil first started working undercover in 1993. And this was at a time in the UK when we had a, a moral panic about crack cocaine because all of our newspapers were constantly publishing stories about how crack was destroying communities in the USA. So when we did get it on the streets, everyone was so terrified about it. Our home office, our government, said to the police forces, we're giving you more money to combat drugs and we want you to prioritise it. We had lots of intelligence about what was going on. Gangsters like to let people know what's going on. That's why you get lots of intelligence. It's almost taunting police. It's part of the intimidation. And after pretending to be someone else for almost a decade, in the beginning of 2000, the art of deception drew Neil deeper and deeper into the drug world. A world that had no pardon for people who were undercover police. A world that he could stay in for months and months in order to try to get evidence. Evidence that could be attained through different methods, like secret cameras. I'd known this particular gangster for months, but I hadn't got any technical footage of him to corroborate it. So you have to make a very careful decision if you're going to wear a camera. At the time, the early 2000s, the, the technology was not spy tech. We're not talking James Bond here. It was pretty crap stuff. So I managed to tempt him out into this car park by... Uh, I got hold of some counterfeit clothing because he was really into his clothes. So I got hold of his counterfeit clothing, but he brought some other people with him I've not met before. So even though he was comfortable with me and I was comfortable with him, these were a bit suspicious of me. He said to me, um, well, while I'm here, do you want something else? And I says, well, if you're carrying white, I'll have a, I'll have a 20 stone off you. So he starts cutting up this massive block of crack cocaine in his car. But while he's doing that, one of his gangster mates comes up to me and starts pushing push me up against this wall and starts looking through my clothes and looking at my buttons. And then he found the camera. I know he's looking at the camera and he says, can I swear? Yeah. He says, fucking hell, man. He's heat. He's fucking 5-0, man. I'm telling you, he's heat. 
the gangster that I that I know well, he says, I oh, know, man, I've known him for months. He's he's cool, man, he's cool. He's saying, I'm fucking telling you, he's fucking wired up, he's fucking heat. I thought, I'm in a secluded car park, a long way from anywhere, and I know the calibre of these gangsters. I know how bad these are. I knew I was in trouble. So I started moving as slowly as possible, and I started swearing at him. I says, what are you picking up my fucking clothes? What are you fucking talking about? This isn't even my jacket. I got this from Jackie this morning. What are you talking about? And I just let, I just relentlessly gave him this abusive tirade. I didn't stop. And I started folding up the clothes I'd got and walking very slowly away. Now, he was really taken aback by my reaction. He really wasn't expecting it. I was even causing him some doubt by saying that the clothes weren't even mine and what you'd... And he, he, was, he was doubting himself, just long enough for me to start walking slowly away. And I could see the exit to this car park, and I thought, if I could just get to that exit there, I'm near other people, I'm near the main road. And um, I'm still swearing, looking over my shoulder and shouting, swearing at him. I hear some footsteps behind me running, and I thought, oh no, they're coming. So I thought, maybe if I spin round, punch one of them quickly, I can maybe get... A, get a head start it was, it was my gangster mate and he says oh don't mind him he's a dickhead and he was holding this this deal this 20 pound rock of crack and i thought to myself really you really want to still sell me some crack i gave him the 20 pound note and i says your dickhead mate's just picking up my clothes telling me he can fuck off anyway did the exchange on camera and carried on walking it's his mate who'd found the camera is screaming at him He's a fucking cop. And he's eventually managed to, to convince him that he'd found a camera. Anyway, then I hear the car revving behind me and I start running. The car, the car is coming against, actually along the pavement after me. And I'm sprinting and I, I know that it's only a couple of metres away. But I managed to move fast enough that I got to behind the barrier and it anchored its brakes before it crashed into the barrier. So then I was back amongst other people and I started, I started walking again. There were moments when I got to know some, some of the people that I was manipulating. I got very friendly with them. And there were times when and I would spend time speaking with people and I would understand how they got to where they would got to and that people people's backstories and i i got involved in that i got very emotionally invested in that in empathizing with them and people are very supportive of each other you know really 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 supportive neil eventually gave up being an undercover police i, sh I should tell you a little bit about the background the people that he met the people that he fooled eventually became more than drug dealers and addicts they became humans the beginning of the end began in 2007, when Neil Woods was working undercover in the city of Nottingham in order to get close to a man called Colin Gunn. Now, Colin Gunn was the leader of the Bestwood Cartel. Colin was known for using a daily cocktail of cocaine and steroids. And the Bestwood Cartel was renowned for their brutality in gang-raping undercover police who tried to get close to them. At, at this time... Colin Gunn was putting out on the streets, he was letting everybody know 
that if he called an undercover cop, he'd be kidnapped, he'd be snatched off the street, and he'd be tortured to death. So this was the kind of atmosphere I was working in. It was, it was pretty tense at the time. It, it, it really was. Neil Wood's mission was to get close to them, and he started working his usual way by manipulating the drug addicts and dealers on the streets. Now in Nottingham, I picked this guy called Cammy. Um, and the reason I picked him is because he was a problematic heroin user who had been um, a user dealer, uh, but he was on bail for dealing heroin. So he was well-connected, but he was also vulnerable, and that meant I could man- manipulate him. He's actually a nice chap, quite easy to get on with as well. Now, well, Cammy, vulnerable Cammy, he had been actually dealing for the Bestwood cartel, so he was perfect for me to get the right introductions. So I, hang, I hung around with Cammy's crowd and I befriended him and I even gave him presents. And and I remember one day, because I, I, I used to make out myself out to be a shoplifter, and in fact I did used to go shoplifting sometimes for my, for my cover, which is, which is great fun if you can get away with it, by the way. But um, I remember one day I gave him a baseball cap and I'll never forget, he very ceremoniously took off his old baseball cap and he put the new one on and he checked out his reflection in the in the shop doorway, in the shop window and he was really pleased and he says, oh thanks man, that's really nice of you a few days after that I found him sitting against the same shop doorway and he was crying and I said, Cammy, come on, what's up man and he says my best mate from school who I used to hang around with until I was about 15, he's just died. He's just died from a freak sports accident on the, on the playing football. He's only 23. And, you know, if anyone should just die like that, it should, probably should be me. You know, we went, we went different ways. Anyway, I miss him, you know. I says, oh, Cammy, that's really rough, man. Are you, are you going to go to the funeral? And he, and he looked at me like I was an alien. He, he, he just looked completely shocked. He said... Don't be stupid. The last thing his family needs is some dirty smackhead turning up at their son's funeral. And this really took me back. This Because however much society or individuals might look down on someone who has a problem with drugs, it's often not as much as they look down on themselves. And so that is one of the things that made me think well maybe 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 i'm not doing the right thing here or maybe there's there's something quite not quite right about what's going on here now cammy introduced me to this guy who liked to cut people he liked that kind of reputation the day that cammy introduced him to me he 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 was in, incredibly tense but he brought his 12 year old son with him this guy and the two of them looked absolutely identical. They were wearing the same tracksuit. They'd shaved their heads, and they looked. This son looked like a mini me. And he took a knife out and he pressed it into my groin. I could feel the blade pressing against my skin, where you never want to feel a blade. And he interrogated me uh, for a, for a long time. Eventually, he was he was won over, and he sold to me. And this was a great part of the operation. This this was one of the major goals to get close to this particular person, so it was fantastic. I think it was about four and a half months into the operation. 
Anyway, the next day, uh, we'd been working lots of days without days off, and two of my backup team had gone off sick, which meant that new, two new police officers had to be brought into the team. Now, I was introduced to these two people, and um, the first one, I shook his hand, I had no problem with him. The second one made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. There was something completely wrong about him. Now, when you've been working undercover for several months, your senses are, shall we say, quite finely tuned, almost verging on paranoia, because you have to be very aware of the changes of someone's perception. You have to be very aware if if uh, if someone is suspicious of you. You look out for very subtle um, indications. And the way this guy looked to the, to the left and down to the floor as he shook my hand and avoided my eye contact, he just, to me, screamed wrong. So I said to the senior officer running the operation, I said, boss, I'm sorry... I cannot have this guy knowing what I'm doing. I don't want him in the briefing. So he said, fine, we'll exclude them both to avoid questions and we'll just tell him to park up at the end, edge of the city. Just tell him to wait there. The operation was very successful, which led on, eventually, which led on to the downfall of the gun team, the Beth Bestwood cartel, but around 12 months later. When, when that happened, it was found out that... The guy I took exception to, that police officer, had actually been an employee of Colin Gunn. He was a spy for the Bestwood cartel. He had been paid as somebody with no previous convictions, no negative intelligence. He'd been paid to join the police and instructed to try and get into CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, the detectives. And he had been in the police for seven years when I met him. He was paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages, plus bonuses for good information. And as I say, he'd been in the police for seven years. Intelligence indicates that he provided information which led to murders of witnesses for serious crime. And I believe that my instinct saved my life that day. Now, in reviewing that instance, this event of the spy in our camp, there was a meeting with me and senior covert police in the UK. And the attitude from those senior police to me was surprise at my shock. They said, Woodsy, of course this happens. How can it not happen? Anyway, at the end of that operation, which was very successful... Very successful indeed. Um, I caught one of the lieutenants from the, that particular cartel and many, many other people. But Cammy had been committing offences on bail, so he was roped into it as well and he was arrested. But when he was in police custody, he was on minute-to-minute watch, suicide watch. And the reason for that, as he explained to the interviewing officers, is that he thought that I was his only friend in the world. He thought I was the only person he could turn to and talk to. And so he felt an intense sense of betrayal, that I'd betrayed him. And of course he's right, I did do. 
I used him and manipulated him and I did, and I did betray him. So when I was told that, that, that was quite quite a difficult thing to deal with. It, it really was emotionally quite difficult. And so at that time, I, I decided to, to stop working on the cover. I just I thought that I've had enough of this. That the, the impact of this is just is just too big. Now I, I've looked back over my undercover work, and I've worked out that I've put people in prison for over a thousand years in total. Now, when I look back on people like Cami. I took the decision to manipulate those people knowing that I was causing them increased risk and that I knew I was causing them increased harm. Increased risk because the gangsters are going to know who was the who was the muppet, who was the fool that introduced the undercover cop. I knew I was causing them increased harm because these people need help. I know I'd spent a lot of time talking to these people. And I know that they needed help. I know they were self-medicating. I know they were hurting. But they ended up getting prison time or more prison time as a result of coming into contact with me. But I suppose the most significant thing for me is that I eventually suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. For me, it manifested itself in some extreme anxious moments. I am generally a very composed person and calm and I lost my composure. You know, I was twi- I still twitch now. In some in, in some ways, it's the sort of weird side effect of PTSD. I, I I look more edgy, I think. But when I was suffering extremely, you know, I was shaking. I was pale. I was uh, in a cold sweat sometimes, um, feeling in a panic, but not really understanding what I was panicking about. And I felt that I couldn't ethically continue in the job, and this coincided with. A sort of a, 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 a pressure, a mental pressure, uh, facing up to the the harm that I had caused. You know, that I had caused to all these people. Interestingly, I've spoken to some military veterans, um, particularly a, a colleague of mine in Leap, who used to be in the SAS, and um, they talk about this kind of PTSD where you are struggling with things that you have done rather than things that have been done to you. They call it moral damage because it's worth us bearing in mind, you know, that we can be damaged mentally by things that are done to us, by violence or near-death experiences, of which I receive plenty. You know, I've almost died working undercover on many occasions. But it's not that that occupies my mind or occupied my mind when I was very seriously suffering from PTSD. It was actually the faces of people like Cammy or other people that I've caused harm to. Um, it's those kind of things that linger with me, and that's that's what I suffered from. These are the facts that were given to me when I got out of a taxi in 1992. My father, Ben Asa, came to Sweden from Morocco in the 60s. He was alone. My mother and my three sisters were still in Morocco. Ben Asa, who barely could read or write, soon got a job as a cleaner. After a few years, he got a job at the hotel. There, he met a young woman called Sonia. She was also a cleaner. And in the end of the 60s, 
she became pregnant with a girl, Maria. She was born in 1970. The same year, my mother finally arrived in Sweden. And for several years, my father had two families. Until one day, he left us and moved back to Morocco. I was one year old. My father had six children with my mother and one child with Sonia. And Maria became a secret for me and several others. And the secret is still a secret. A secret that is becoming more and more present. Hey, du har ringt Maria. Du var kan inte ta ditt samtal just nu. Lämna meddelandet typet. Hej då. Hej Maria. Det är din bror Mohammed. Jag tänkte att vi skulle träffas. You've been listening to Secrets, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia and the podcast company Soundtelling. Host is Mohammed Elabed, field reporter Osa Secker. The intro music was made by the Swedish artist Min Stora Sorg. The artwork was made by Sepidar Hussein. My name is Martin Johnson, I'm the producer, and the executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Join us next week for more secrets. Uh, well, we are at one of my favorite spots in this forest. We will walk deep into the forest. And every time I'm here, I find something new to work with. To try to find out what secrets are hidden in the shadows. I didn't think about consequences because you just focus trying to not be discovered. That's the only thing you think about, not to be discovered.